Hey, this is Dan Kidder, and I am your host for the What's Happening in Southern Utah, the podcast. And these interviews with our city council candidates um, are also sponsored by the Southern Utah Citizens for Ethical Government and the Cedar, Cedar City Politics Facebook group. Today with us in the studio, we have Cedar City Council candidate Kathy Long. And for those who haven't heard any of the other podcasts, the way it works in Cedar City for the council is a little bit different than it normally is for like a county commission seat or school board seat where you run for a specific seat. We have three openings. Well, we have two people who are not running for re-election and we have one candidate who is running for re-election. That's Tyler Melling. He'll be in the studio tomorrow. So there's three seats that are up in the air, and for that, we had eight people file, and we had one of those drop out. So since there are more than six, um, there will be a primary election in September, and the top six from that primary election will go on to run for uh, those three seats, and the top three vote-getters in the general election in November will take those seats in the council. So I hope that made sense to everybody. But this morning in the studio, we have Kathy Long with us. And Kathy, I want to give you a few minutes to go ahead, introduce yourself, tell us why you're running for city council, things that you think that we should know about you, and then we will get into asking you some questions. Okay. Um, so as Dan said, I'm Kathy Long. Um, I've lived in the area for 40 years, moved down here from Salt Lake to go to school at SUSC um, at the time and just stayed because I traded the shopping and the restaurants for beautiful scenery and clean air. And I, um, I, I loved the area. I, I loved being here. Um, it was a great place to raise my children. We lived in Parowan for a long time, but moved back to Cedar. Um, just the area, the people are wonderful. And I think that there are some things that we need to, to look at, at in city count on the city council just some things like um attainable housing and zoning and and a few of those things just to to make it more equitable for people to be able to afford to live here um that's one of the big things economic development is also a um, a, a real push that we need to make um to make to give people jobs that are available to to um sustain a lifestyle that, that they can stay and continue to live here. So one of the things that we just were speaking about is the infrastructure. Mm. Um, as we have a lot of growth coming into the area and looking at the numbers, you know, everybody says it's the Californians coming in, but it's not. It's the people in the Salt Lake Valley that are moving here. Um, and a lot of people from St. George are moving here. Yeah. But regardless of where they're coming from, the roads are getting extremely congested because we don't have that infrastructure in place how would you go about addressing that issue you know there's there's no i live on the north end of town and to get to walmart takes me 15 20 minutes some days um and just i there's no there's no um other corridor besides main street to get from the north end to the south end unless you go on the freeway um but i think that we need to expand some of our side streets to make them more viable as corridors um, I know 300 West starts and stops, and that's a great way to get there, but um, you have to go a little roundabout. Um, we have nothing on the east side, although I know that the city council is working toward that right now. Um, so that's a, 
that's a good option if we have something west and east. Um, but UDOT <laughs> has done a study and they, and they said that there is more traffic on the north end of town than there is on the south end of town. I find that interesting because living on the north end of town, I don't see the kind of traffic that is on the south end of town. So we need to maybe make that a little bit different. And it's a UDOT thing, not a, not a Cedar City Council thing. But um, if we can figure out a way to make that X turn, that diamond, they call it, um, a little bit better. I think oh, that thing is, you know, I predicted that was going to be a dismal failure back when it was built originally. And it's, it's overflowing now. Mm -hmm. um, they need to cut back some of the cement medians that they put in, and, and UDOT has been the impediment to that from, from what I've seen in city council meetings. They've been talking about that. But you will get people trying to make that left turn to go to Walmart, Home Depot, the liquor store, and, and Eagle Ridge back there. Yeah. And they'll be backed up into the lane all the way back to the other, uh, the other light and then all the way up to the Maverick. Yeah, and it's just absolutely dismal. That whole crisscross thing that they built down there was ridiculous when they did it. They, you know, there's there's a good example of wasting taxpayer dollars to, <laughs> to build something that costs more than than just a simple T intersection. But um, so looking at that, I mean, one of the things that you hear from people all the time is let's put moratoriums on new development. And, you know, my, my answer is inevitably about 70 to 80 percent of the economy of Cedar City is in somehow tied to development, whether it's contractors, you know, the tradespeople, electricians, plumbers, insurance people, uh, building supply, man, you know, manufacturers of products and suppliers of products, insurance agents, title companies, real estate agents, some way tied to that. And, and they spend that money in this community and it trickles down to everybody they do yeah so what is your answer then to how do we develop in a way that makes sense you know we have a master plan and if we if we stick to the master plan with some possible maybe um some deviations i think that will be will be okay the it's true i, I work with the home builders the, the um, Iron County Home Builders Association, I, and I've worked there for eight. I've worked with them for eight years, so I I understand what you're saying about the building, um, and it's very it's, it's extremely important to to our development and our and our economy here in in Southern Utah and Cedar City especially. So I don't think that a moratorium is the answer. Um, obviously. I think it's illegal. <laughs> it is. To, to, yeah, to put a moratorium on anything. Um, but I think that if we stick to our master plan and stick to where we want to put houses and where we want to put people, then um, not even where we want to, but where where we should, could put put the people, I think that that would make a big difference. And if we have the, the traffic corridors to filter those people through, that makes even more sense. I know St. George... I, I used to work in I worked in St. George for like eight months and it drove me nuts just trying to get around. Um, so I don't think that we want to get like St. George and just sprawl everywhere. I think that we need to make it make sense. Right. What would be the the and I'm, I'm not going to give you a set number because each candidate would have a different number. But what would be your top priority issues if you're elected to the city council? Um, obviously, infrastructure, water. Um, water's a big thing. Um, 
development, economic development. Um, and uh, let's see. Top five, did you say? I, I didn't want to set a number because okay. it's going to be different. <laughs> I think those are the big three, though, that, that we need to look into. And then development, um, attainable housing is a big thing, huge thing. We'll talk about that for a little bit because, you know, one of the things that uh, one of the candidates who's up for re-election, uh, Tyler Melling, um, was a big driver of was what they call the uh, the, the neighborhood I can't remember the term. Family neighborhood zones. Yeah, the neighborhood zones. And that allowed, and, and it didn't really require anybody to do anything, but it gave them the freedom because one of the things that people complain about in developing in Cedar City is, is how strict and how difficult it is mm -hmm. with zoning laws and setbacks that they have. And this allowed you to build a smaller house on a smaller lot. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and the big complaint was that People who grow up in this community, because of the lack of opportunity here and the higher cost of living here, have to move away because they can't yeah. afford to live in the community that they were raised in. Um, how would you go about addressing that? So I think the family neighborhood zones are, are great because they allow for, like you said, they allow for smaller homes on smaller lots. Um, that's a great thing. There's, I have a friend that lives up in Murray, Utah. And she has a manufactured home. It's in a 55-plus community. And her home was $100,000. Um, and, and it's a th nice three-bedroom, probably 1,500-square-foot home. But it's a smaller lot, and, and that just makes sense. Um, if we could get something, if we could find a way to make housing affordable, um, then I think that we could and attainable. I think that we could keep our, our kids, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren here in town and, and have them thrive here. Um, one of the things that, that I've noticed is the student housing. And you have a three-bedroom home, you can rent that to six kids for four to $600 a month. That's each. A, yeah, each, each, each kid. So that drives, the, that drives the cost of rent for normal families way up because if someone can get you know twenty four hundred dollars a month for their three-bedroom home that's what they're going to charge so it, it makes it difficult to even rent a place let alone buy a place and twenty four hundred dollars that's almost more than a mortgage payment oh yeah when i first moved here 18 years ago i was renting a two-bedroom for 650 mm -hmm. and up until i bought just recently um that same was like over fourteen hundred dollars yeah so it you know, you're, you're talking more than a hundred percent increase in that time period. And it's getting very difficult for people to find a place to rent or even be able to afford to buy, forget being afforded to being able to afford to buy with the current housing prices. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the student housing district, I know that there's some, some people that are not real thrilled with it. Um, and they're very vocal and they come to city councils and, and talk about it, but it, it makes it so that our homes, are, are available to rent for a normal family price. Um, and, and it helps the students because they're more concentrated around the, around the, um, the campus. Well, if nobody ever wants the value of their property to go down. And so no. the current scarcity of inventory just keeps that uh, artificially high. And, you know, nobody wants that to go down until it's time to pay the taxes on it. And then you kind of wish it was valued <laughs> a little bit less. Yeah. But well, um, and speaking with a real estate agent, there's 105 homes 
like a couple of weeks ago, there were 105 homes available for sale in Cedar City. That's incredibly low. And housing starts are outrageously high. Yes. The number of starts and permits that have been issued are outrageously high. Well, with all of that comes a, a high demand on water, which is always something that's pretty much top of mind of any candidate running for office. And we have a mayor who's very involved in water and knows a great deal about water. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have a very active water conservancy board. And what are your thoughts on current water usage and plans for going forward to meet the increasing demand? So I know that the, that the mayor and the city council have approved buying some water from outside the area it's not the it's not the wawa valley and the pine valley it's it's um outside of that area so they've they've gone ahead and um, are in the process of purchasing that which will make a huge impact um i think conservation is is key we need to lower our green lawn standards you know most of us most of us um, are here from, or, or our ancestors are here from Europe, right? So, um, so our European ancestors came here and turned their, wanted to turn our desert valley into a green, lush area. That's what they started doing, and now we're paying the cost because we're losing out on water. So if we conserve, and then the state has issued a, um, a rebate for people who are willing to take out some of their lawns in their yards um, and it's a dollar fifty a square foot that they will rebate you yeah up to fifty thousand dollars yeah and my my sister in salt lake did that built a beautiful patio with that money so now that they've got you know a little bit of lawn and a patio so it it's that's that makes sense and it's a it's a state thing so it doesn't come out of our city budget um the only thing that we had to do was was say that yes we will conserve and we will have new housing starts have less lawn um and and that makes sense because it it trickles down and it will um it it will cause us to use less water in the future plus i know the city went to a um a scaled water rate so the more you use the more you pay yeah and that just started this month and those new prices because that's been the thing for a long time our water has been very cheap Mm-hmm. Um, relative to other other communities, and, and especially communities that live in deserts, because this is a desert. Yeah. People don't always realize this, even though we're, you know, just because we're 5,800 feet, yeah. um, we're higher than Denver. I always tell those sissies in Denver <laughs> when they complain about the height that we're higher than Denver. Um, but yeah, this is a high desert, and it's, it's an arid place. And so we have to take some steps to... But I, I like the fact that there's this great big giant carrot and a little tiny stick of higher prices. Um, but there's really been no mandates in in that direction. Do you think we need to start mandating? I don't think that we need to start mandating. I think that people will see the difference in, in the pricing that they're paying, the prices that they're paying, and, and want to conserve. Um, and I know it's kind of, you know, humans are not generally known to to take things away that they've already had but but i think that if we just let the let the market kind of weed it out i think that that will that will help and we can also start using some secondary water on some of our other on some of the places that um aren't parks so secondary water for those who don't understand is non-culinary water 
Yes. This is water that won't come out of your tap. This is, comes out of Cold Creek or it's non-filtered. It's non-treated. It might come out of the waste treatment plant. There's mm -hmm. a lot of discharge water that has secondary uses for that. It's what they water the cemetery with, the school lawns with. Those are not coming out of our culinary water system. This is mm -hmm. water that otherwise would sit out in the field and evaporate and be wasted. So, yeah, there isn't a call to be able to use and tap into that secondary water system for things that qualify. Mm -hmm. Obviously, inside a building does not qualify. And yeah. Water that could be drunk and, and used in bathrooms, and, and that doesn't qualify. Washing dishes. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of talk about that discharge from the sewage treatment plant mm -hmm. and how that water can be used. One proposal that's been made is to spend about $100 million to convert our wastewater treatment plant from type 2 affluent to type 1 affluent, which would be culinary water, um, and, and be able to be used on more things than just alfalfa and lawns and, and that kind of thing. Uh, the other is to sell that to people who are in agriculture to encourage them not to draw water from the aquifer mm -hmm. that could be used for culinary water and to instead use this type 2 affluent water. Where do you come down on that? I think that if it's not used culinarily, <laughs> that's not even a word. Um, if it's not used in homes, I think, and it's used for lawns and alfalfa, I think that that would be a good use of that water. See, like it can be sprayed on corn that's fed to animals, but it can't be spread on corn that's fed to people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that That's an interesting, interesting quandary. As long as we can make sure that it's clean, filtered, and and up to snuff, as it were, um, then, then yes, I would say use it for animal feed and alfalfa. Um, I would never want it to be used in my home. Um, but, but we could water things like the, the post office. Well, the post office has some work to do anyway. But um, if we could water, use it for the post office, state banks, huge um, area lawn, some of the office buildings, that would make sense. Right now, the type two uh, or, or non secondary water, the mm -hmm. secondary water system doesn't run to all of the places where people would like to tap into it to use it. And it'd be a pretty significant cost to run pipe to, you know, State Bank and, yeah. and all those places where it's not currently running. Would you favor looking at doing some kind of, of pipe infrastructure for the secondary water system? In steps, I think, yes. Because it's just the water, the water situation is just going to get worse. You know, we're not always going to have a, a, season, a winter season like we had last year where we have, you know, such, such an abundance of moisture falling. So I think that if we did it in steps, then, then yes, I think I would be in, in favor of that, yeah. Speaking of abundance of water falling, <laughs> um, we've had our share of flooding uh, here and in Enoch both have had their share of flooding. A couple of years ago, yeah. Yeah, and it seems like we either have too much water or not enough water, never the right amount at the same time. <laughs> um, but there is some projects underway to help divert that water flow and also channel it toward discharge, uh, to recharge, mm -hmm. uh, to recharge wells. And are you familiar with those product, those projects, and where do you come down on them? A little bit familiar. Um, I, I think so... In Enoch, I know that a lot of the, the flooding was caused by the sewage sewers backing up because the storm drains couldn't handle the amount of water that was coming in. So I don't think that that would be good to put in our in our discharge area. But just the water that was flowing down the streets, I would say yes, do that. 
get those divert diversion yeah. systems set up. Mm-hmm. And, and I know there's been a lot of work done uh, in the state's been involved with this and as well as the city and in, in making those diversion channels less prone to clogging up with trees and rocks and, mm-hmm. and everything else. Because that was a big part of our problem in those last series of floodings was we had the culverts, but they were just blocked solid with, with gravel and, mm-hmm. and tree branches and, and everything else. Um, for you, one of the things that we have to look at is Cedar City is pretty uh, economically responsible. Yes. We're in the black as far as, you know, we run a, a, a surplus every year with our taxation. and um, But one of the big things that's coming up for reauthorization, it will be on the ballot in November, is the Recreation Arts and Parks tax, which is a special purpose local option sales tax of 0.1% that's added on to every purchase that we make. Um, And the voters will have an opportunity to vote to reauthorize that or not authorize that on the ballot. But one of the criticisms that's come up is just uh, the Saturday, the Johnson Center for the Arts that just received $14,000 in wrap tax funds held a drag show for children. And what is your thoughts on the wrap tax and should tax dollars be used for that type of purpose? So yes, I'm I'm very in favor of the wrap tax because it helps it helps our recreation, our our arts and our parks. Um, so I would say yes, vote for it. Um, and it's such a small amount um, anyway, and a lot of tourists pay that too. So so they're getting the benefit, as are we. Um, the Johnson Center drag show. Yeah, that's that's a quandary. Um, I I'm going to parrot what um, Scott Phillips said, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, just because a small percentage of the wrap tax goes toward the Johnson Center, um, don't don't not vote for it just because of that. Um, the, the drag show was presented by by a private business. They rented the they rented the Johnson Center. So they were able to do whatever they wanted to do within reason, of course, um, in that space. And so we have a freedom of speech thing, I think. Um, so I did not take my grandchildren to it, but that doesn't mean that I would not have gone. Okay. The, uh, <laughs> one of the other big issues that came up a few years back was the city was looking at building an addition to the aquatic center that was originally priced at around $7 million, and then that price moved up to about $9.2 million, um, and they voted to go forward with it, and the city put to, or the citizens of the city put together a referendum to make them at least put that on the ballot. Do you feel, like, and ultimately they canceled it because the, the price with all the, the inflation of building materials and, and mm-hmm. shortage of contractors went up to over $14 million. And so they've, they've canceled it or postponed it, at least for the time being. Um, first of all, what do you see as the role of local government in those types of wants versus needs? And do you think that there is a certain number of dollars that should be spent. So in this case, um, the type of bonding that they were going to do on it didn't require them to put it on the ballot, but there was nothing legally prohibiting them from putting it on the ballot. So is there a dollar amount 
that you think that any project, a capital project like that, should just automatically go on the ballot for the voters to decide? I don't think that there's a certain dollar amount that the voters should decide on. I think that that's why we elect officials to to make those decisions. That's why we're a representative republic, um, so that we can have those have the council that that makes those decisions. I think anything more than fourteen million dollars, though, we might have to look at. Um, and and I know I was working with home builders at the time, and houses were skyrocketing because of the supply demand supply chain issues. Um, so no, I, I I don't I can't think of any any except unless you get up to like fourteen million dollars for a building that might be a little might be a little um, necessary to put on the ballot. I think it was more of what the people wanted as opposed to the dollar amount. Although the dollar amount was a was a factor, but um, but if we vote against the wrap tax, then we wouldn't have any money to put towards anything like that anyway. So um, don't vote against it. <laughs> One more time, don't vote against it. Um, but yeah, I'd, I um, I I don't know what the dollar amount would be if there would be a dollar amount. One of the out of that. I was involved with that referendum, and one of the suggestions that was made was to, uh, at the same time as doing the referendum, was to do a um, a proposal that the voters voted on. There's a term for that, and I can't think of it right now. <laughs> um, but that would require any time the city council wanted to build a capital project in excess of $1 million, they would have to put it on the ballot. And the thinking was, if they can't trust them with the credit card, then we take the credit card away. Um, and that would we ultimately decided not to go that direction. But I kind of wondered if you had a thought on, you know, when do the voters get to have a say in this? Because the 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 and maybe you can address this too. One of the the biggest crit criticisms of city council is people will go and speak and they don't care. Yeah, I don't think that that's true. I think that they do care. I know that they listen and they take. To heart what's said I've, I've talked to all of the city council members at one time or another but they do listen and and the dollar I'm not sure what so I'm, I'm in a conundrum here huh um, what was the question again just so what do you see as the role, okay, as, the role? As, of government in choosing wants versus needs I think that wants always should come first I'm um, not wants, excuse me. <laughs> wow. I think needs should always come first. What we need, we need water. So that was that was bought and and there was no public input on that because it's something that we need. It's something that's absolutely necessary for us to survive. Um, I think wants should possibly maybe be looked at a little bit closer. I know that there are public hearings every city council meeting for for different things that people want to have um so i if people show up voice their opinions and if there's an overwhelming or even underwhelming um outcry for against for or against what the council's doing then they have to take notice that's been the criticism when talking to people why they don't come to city council meetings is well, nobody listens to what we have to say anyway they do listen they do listen and and you know i've been going to city council meetings since march and they're they're attentive they're listening they they pay attention to what this what the citizens want you know i um i'm scott phillips is a wonderful example 
of that. You know, I, I've I've had people tell me that he's one of the ones that actually listens and votes the way that the people would want him to vote. It, it's funny you mention that because last interview we was talking with Carter Wilkie, um, I brought that up. Is that I've always appreciated that about Scott Phillips mm -hmm. is that he goes into everything very thoughtfully. And on national issues, and he's a Democrat, I'm a Republican, we probably wouldn't agree on anything. But he approaches every issue, he'll drive out to the scene. And so when mm -hmm. he can, he's speaking about it, he can say, well, on this side there's a berm and there's a ditch that runs through that. And he knows that intimately, and he, he's very contemplative and asks questions that are probing and not you know, trying to lead in any way. And so would you sort of follow that same model if you were elected? Absolutely. I, even just going to city council now, I, I drive out to places that are, that are you know, being discussed. I, I drive out to where the new subdivisions are proposed and the new, where, you know, where they want a variance on the, on the landscaping. I drive out there just to see it, just so I know and I'm informed for, for the week ahead. Um, I, I know that there are, are some that may not do that because they don't have the time or whatever, but I think that that's important. It's, it's extremely important to know what's going on. You know, it's interesting, the makeup, the current makeup of our city council, we, we have Ron Riddle, mm -hmm. who kind of brings an everyman approach to this, kind of the, the regular, you know, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, hardworking, business-owning uh, guy. Mm -hmm. um, you got Tyler Melling, who's an attorney who understands the legal ramifications <laughs> of all of these things. Um, you, you've got Scott, who we mentioned, just comes into this from a very thoughtful standpoint. Um, you've got Craig and you've got Terry, and, and they, they sort of take a counter to what most of them are going uh, approach. And they bring, like, Carrie comes from the, the mortgage industry, and so she brings kind of knowledge of that side of the, the housing and, and business development side. And, mm -hmm. and Craig does too. He's kind of from that business development side as well. Um, so it's an interesting makeup. What do you bring to the council that you think would either counter or contribute to the job that the city council does? Well, like I said, I, I you know, I'm, I'm fairly contemplative as well and very thoughtful. And um, so I, I do go to the to the sites that they're talking about. So I would bring that that Scott kind of feel to it. Plus, I've worked with a lot of nonprofits. I've worked with the Children's Justice Center and the Canyon Creek and the Karen share, the home builders, the chamber of commerce, the board of realtors. So I, I've kind of got a little bit of everything to uh, a little bit of knowledge of ever, you know, a lot of what goes on in the city. So I, I think that that's kind of what I would bring. Um, not kind of, that's, that is what I would bring. Um, just to, to kind of round it out, to listen to the people, to, to hear what they're saying and then try to make the best decision for our city. Is there anything that you think you'd bring to council that maybe we're lacking or haven't had? I think the nonprofit um, sector is is a not lacking, but just not someone that's been involved, seriously involved with those with the organizations that that are necessary for our city to to operate correctly. Because there is quite a bit where the the city supports, especially mm -hmm. Karen Share and in Canyon Creek Services, the Family Resource Center, um, Children's Justice League, they each get supported in some way by taxpayer funds from the city. And it's not always a lot, um, mm -hmm. but it's what the city can do at the, at the time. Um, so it would be, I think, good to have that sort of perspective of the, the nonprofits, that what they bring to the city and what they cost. 
Well, and, and those nonprofits help the least of our people. Right. So, you know, if you're, if you're homeless, if you're in a domestic violence situation, if you've been abused or attacked by someone that you know, those, those, those nonprofits are where you go for help. When people always say, you know, well, this nonprofit costs the city so-and-so, but they don't look at what those things cost the city. Those homelessness and, and domestic violence, and they cost the city as well. And so, yeah. if there's nonprofits that can mitigate that or intercede in that, mm-hmm. um, that usually ends up being a net gain for the the finances of the city. So, absolutely, yes. I have no problem with that. I run one. <laughs> so, um, what else is it that that you? I mean, why do you want to be on the city council? What is it that you bring that you think would make you an asset to the people of Cedar City? This is what I've been thinking about for a long time. Why do I want to run? Um, why am I crazy? That's I've, I've been asked that before. Um, why do I want to bring that um, that pain to myself? I think that that we need a voice of reason and a voice of reason, reason and and com, um, compassion. And and we you can get both of those in one person. Then you can, you know, go on and build our city to be better. Plus, I have the, you know, the the building knowledge, the development knowledge, the economic knowledge, and and I'm also the um, treasurer for a um, a very large nonprofit state entity. So, I have that also that bookkeeping and the and the the fiduciary yes, side. Yes, the fiduciary yeah. side. Yes, that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. So so it's I'm kind of just a little bit of everything. What is it that you would tell a voter? Um, I mean, they're, they're, they've got eight. Well, they had they have seven choices now. They have seven choices. What would set you apart from those others who are running? The fact that I've lived here for so long and I've seen all of the changes that our city's gone through. I mean, when I moved here forty years ago, there was no Walmart. There was no you know megaplex. There was no you know there. There was no, um, you know, not not the restaurants, not the not the development that we have now. It was just a small, smallish community. We now have 36,505 residents. So is that the city or the county? That's the city. Wow. Yeah. So it's it's grown immensely, and and to have someone that's been here, seen seen the the good, the bad, the ugly of what what our city has changed. How our city has changed in the last forty years, I think is is a plus. Plus, you know, like I said, the compassion and the reason, and then and the fiduciary. <laughs> um, I, I think it's all important, and I think that's it's, we need someone on the city council that can do all of that and understands how it all works. So a big deal for me is our first responder community. Yes, it's, it's always been something near and dear to my heart. How do you see yourself on the council uh, helping to get the resources, the training, the equipment that we need for our first responders, police, fire, emergency services, uh, EMTs? Well, I think I think the city council right now is doing a wonderful, doing a really good job about getting the necessary equipment for the most part. We did do the um, the city, um, sorry, the home builders, chamber of commerce and board of realtors did a fundraiser last Wednesday for the um, for the defibrillators to, to get a defibrillator in each police car 
um, and I don't know how much they raised, but I know that they they raised uh, quite a bit. Um, so, so we can go forward with that. As far as the the training and and fire and uh, fi police and firemen, I think we need to to raise our wages a little bit. Um, you know, one of the things that I, you know, in talking to some of the police officers, that's what they said their biggest concern was. And it costs almost, almost $100,000 to train a new officer. So when, when you have an officer leave and then you have to train another one, that's $100,000 out the door. But I think that if, our, if the morale and the wages were better, then, and the, you know, morale follows wages, um, then I think that we could keep what we have now, which is a fairly decent police force. So there's an organization called Police One that, that sort of an advocate and information group for police officers, and they did a, a study recently, and they found that 76% of the officers that they interviewed um, said that their morale had nothing whatsoever to do with their pay, which I found to be extremely interesting because you'd think that they would, would go together and... From the officers that I've spoken with, they speak very highly of the current leadership of the police department mm -hmm. and, and the fire department. Um, but you're right. The retention has been terrible because if they can get, you know, 20, 30 percent higher in Salt Lake City and be afforded to live there, mm -hmm. um, they, yeah, I, I can see them doing that. But, well, but, the, but the crime rate is 20 to 30 percent higher it is. in Salt Lake City than it is here, too. So. So there's a trade-off, I guess. Yeah. There is, yeah. And, and looking at our, our crime rate, I mean, obviously the number of incidents has gone up because our population has because gone our, up. Yeah. But as a percentage of our population, it really hasn't changed much yeah. in, in a long time. I mean, we hear more about it. We've got social media and we've got, mm -hmm. you know, those types of things that make it more prevalent. But and, and a lot of that crime is perpetrated by people from outside the area coming in uh, on I-15. We're getting a lot of, you know, fentanyl and, and drugs and uh, we had the county attorney in, uh, and the sheriff in for an interview and talking about crime in Iron County. And one of the things they said is uh, that heroin is on the on the resurgence because so much effort was put towards methamphetamine and, and fentanyl mm -hmm. that sort of the, the focus got taken off heroin. So we're starting to see more of that coming into the area. Um, what do you believe is the proper approach of the city council in keeping crime low um, and, and making sure that the citizens are safe? Um, I, th I think giving the police officers raises would be one way to, to help with that because I don't know that the city council can do anything directly about crime. Um, you know, they're not the ones out there perpetrating it. So I, I don't see... Not that always. <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I don't see that there's a way for the city council to do anything other than, than give, give our police officers a better living wage. Can I make a suggestion? Sure. Get out of their way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and one thing that I've, that I've looked into, um, we don't have a detox center here in Cedar City. And, you know, we have a rehab center. We have a couple of them. We have a, um, and they're in Iron County, there's a, a great rehab center in Perowin, um, but there's no detox. So people who are unfortunately under the thumb of drugs are going to detox in jail. Yeah. And that's not the place to do that. 
Yeah, so and talking have, to the sheriff, he, he expressed his frustration that he gets treated as a mental health facility. Yeah. And he's yeah. not. He's an incarceration facility. And, mm -hmm. and you know, so one, one thing I've pushed for, I actually got this done in Columbus, Georgia, and I've pushed for in Cedar City, is the creation of a citizen's police commission with teeth, has the ability to issue subpoenas, um, suggest... Uh, to the county attorney's office prosecution in cases of misdeeds, um, can inflict uh, disciplinary actions on officers who've done things incorrectly. Um, and what we found with that when we did it in Columbus is the officers were very opposed to it, but now they love it because in many of these cases, it shows the truth that they didn't do anything wrong and it exonerates them from wrongdoing. How would you feel about such a thing being implemented in Cedar City? You know, I, th I think that they tried that a, a while ago. It didn't have any teeth. Yeah, it didn't have any teeth. That's a, that's the problem. I, th I think that as long as it doesn't interfere with the um, job of the police officers, I think that that would be a good thing. And keep them accountable. And obviously, yes. we, whenever you do that, you have the chief as a member of that, and he can answer questions about administration mm -hmm. and policy. And, and I'd love to see something like that. So, Kathy, tell us in, in the last five minutes here, um, how people can learn more about you, where you stand on the issues, uh, reach out to you, contact you, send you money, get a sign, any of those good things. Let them know how they can reach out to you. So the best way to reach out to me is um, via my email, which is Kathy with a K for for Cedar at gmail.com. Um, I have a website that will be up in the next couple of days. That's also Kathy for Cedar dot com. Um, or you can call me. My number is 435-477-2093. So and we'll, we'll put that up on the bottom of the screen for this. Okay. This will be available on Apple Podcast as an audio only. Uh, and it will also be available on the What's Really Happening in Southern Utah Facebook group as video and on the Cedar City Politics Facebook page uh, and, and a few other places as video. So you can either listen to this as you're driving in your car or you can watch it at <laughs> your leisure or however you prefer to look at that. I also forgot I do have a Facebook page and an Instagram, it, and those are both Kathy for Cedar. All right. Well, Kathy Long has been in here, and uh, we got just a few minutes left. If there's anything that we didn't touch on that you think people should know about you and your candidacy and you know, what you would do for Cedar City. You know, like I said, the thoughtful, compassionate um, way of, of running a city I think is most important, and I think that's what I can bring to the city. All right. This has been Kathy Long in the What's Really Happening in Southern Utah, the podcast and Cedar City Politics. And this has been brought to you by the Southern Utah Citizens for Ethical Government. And now I'm going to make a shameless plug here. Um, many of you know that I'm the executive director of the Friends of the Iron County Sheriff, which is a 501c3 nonprofit. And because of the generosity of this community, we were able to raise over $30,000 in providing additional mental health care for our first responders in the aftermath of the hate killings in Enoch at the beginning of the year. And with that, we've been able to purchase over 100 hours of additional mental health care for our first responders, thanks to your generosity. Well, it's time to start our next campaign, and we have launched Operation Woof. 
And talking to the sheriff, his biggest need right now is an additional canine that is trained in firearms and explosives detection. Right now, when they receive a bomb threat or a report of a gun in a school, they have to wait for the state or St. George to send a canine that's trained in that. And that can take hours, and those potential hours, those hours of delay can create a potential um, tragedy. So if we had that resource here in our community, it's going to cost about $20,000 for us to purchase, train, and outfit that canine. Hmm. And we've already began that. You can go online and you can donate, if you're so inclined, to friendsoficsheriff.org. And there's a donate button there and big old picture of a canine. And you can... Uh, donate to Operation Woof to help us bring that vital resource to our community. This has been Dan, this has been Dan Kidder with the What's Really Happening in Southern Utah podcast and the Cedar City Politics interviews with Cedar City candidates. And we will have more of those coming up later on in the week. And we thank you for checking in and we will see you soon.